You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll be seeing how getting medics and police to talk has cut violent injury in Cardiff. Uh, in effect, the police have got the hand tied, one hand tied behind their back because they just don't know about a whole lot of violence, even serious violence. And Mabel Chu finds out about prescribing the new antiplatelet agents. So it was found that those people who had the uh, alleles, which caused a loss of function in CYP2C19, um, responded less well to clobrigal and they had more cardiovascular events. But before that, this week, a parliamentary select committee in the UK has been looking at defamation laws in England and Wales. There has been a growing campaign to change how we deal with libel, and that's led to a draft bill being produced. On Monday this week, the committee examining the bill brought together some science writers and editors to give evidence, including BMJ's editor-in-chief, Fiona Godley, who joins me in the studio now. Fiona, what's the problem with these defamation laws as they stand? There's a strong sense that UK libel laws are out of sync with international norms, and we have very relatively onerous libel laws where people can um, seek damages for defamation um, uh, for, for, for things that are published about them, which in other countries would, would, not be, would not go to law. Added to which, the costs of litigation are enormous, and there really are no winners apart from the lawyers. So if you win a case, you still have to pay vast sums. If you def- successfully defend a case, um, you have to pay vast sums. Uh, and the time involved. So, for example, Simon Singh, who was sued by the British Chiropractic Association uh, for suggesting that they were making um, unsubstantiated claims for some of their treatments, uh, he succeeded in uh, defending his case against their libel action, uh, but it took out two years of his life, during which he was unable to do any other work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's made he's lost a lot of money and lost a lot of time. And a lot of people wouldn't be willing to do what Simon Singh did, or what Peter Wilmshurst, another ongoing defendant against a libel action, um, is undertaking. So you have to be a certain type of brave, perhaps slightly um, maverick person to be willing to undergo that and to stand up for your right to say the things you feel need saying. Sure, and that's the chilling effect that people have been talking about. Absolutely. I think the feeling is that certainly within scientific and medical debate that the ability of um, people with money, often companies, to shut down criticism and discussion is, is not in the interests of science. No. So what did you and the others giving evidence suggest should be done? So the three main ways I think we're looking to reduce the burden of libel threats in uh, medical journals in particular, are to introduce a higher threshold so that um, only if something is considered to have caused serious and substantial harm could a libel action be taken, and that would prevent trivial and vexatious claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, the fact that companies and corporations shouldn't be able to sue uh, because they have other means of redress and um, they tend to have a lot more resources than individuals they might be trying to silence. And the third thing is to uh, try to bring in within a qualified privilege um, bracket, which means it's free from the um, threat of being uh, sued against, is the peer-reviewed literature. Um, So those are really the three main things that we think would help to reduce the cost and the burden um, and the chilling effect of the defamation laws as they currently stand. Did you get the impression from the committee that they were open to your ideas? 
My sense was that this was a good process. They really were listening and that, that the reasonable uh, suggestions for changes to the current draft are being taken on board. So we've a little while to wait before this might end up being actual UK law then? So I think they're going to put it through later on in the year, provided nothing else happens to put it on the back burner. That should happen. And um, we expect that there will be an improvement in process, reduction in cost and um, a freer speech in the UK than is currently the case. Well, it's an interesting topic and I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on that in the future. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. And you can see that full committee session on the government's website, linked to from our podcast homepage. Now, how can doctors and police sharing information help stop violent crime? I'm joined in the studio by Jonathan Shepherd, an oral and an oral and maxillofacial surgeon who also works in the Violence and Society Research Group at Cardiff University. He and his colleagues have been examining the Cardiff Violence Prevention Programme, which has been running for about 15 years now. Jonathan, I was surprised to read in your article that only between a quarter and a third of violent injuries appearing in A&E end up in police records. Mm -hmm. I was under the impression that there was a, a mandate to report at least a subsection of these. So can you talk us through that surprisingly low figure? Yeah, certainly. We did a data matching exercise, matching up police records and A&E records with regard to violence. And it shows that only a proportion actually appear in police records. This applies to serious injuries as well as the more minor injuries. So, for example, in Atlanta, there was a study done which showed that 13% of shootings which resulted in emergency treatment did not appear in police records citywide. And the reasons for this, we found, are that people are... Uh, frightened of reprisals if they mm. report offences to the police. They don't sometimes want their own conduct looked at by the police. They sometimes don't know who did it. So they, they think, what's the point of reporting it if I can't say to the police who did it? Um, and sometimes, of course, or often, the medical needs uh, trump uh, the need to report something to the police. So it gets pushed back and then forgotten about. So that leaves a lot of injuries or a lot of data there potentially about yeah. where things are going on that, yeah. that could be used. Yeah, and um, police work depends uh, crucially on knowing where the hotspots for violence are. Uh, and so what this research showed was that, uh, in effect, the police have got the hand tied, one hand tied behind their back because they just don't know about a whole lot of violence, even serious violence. In Wales, there was this Cardiff Violence Prevention Programme. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, in 1996, we put together a group of people around the table for the first time with representatives from the police, from the city government, from health, the emergency department and the voluntary sector, victim support particularly, with the express objective of sharing information um, so that we had a fuller picture of what was happening with violence and mm -hmm. where it was occurring, weapon use, um, day and time, uh, and the precise location, you know, which bar, which club, which park, which school, etc. And all anonymised data, of course, it doesn't involve sharing personal data about which could, could be used to identify a particular victim or patient. The use of this data led to more frequent police intervention and earlier intervention in arguments, punch-ups, uh, 
uh, assaults, mm. for example. So that's what you were trying to measure, how effective it was. And yeah. I understand mm. you compared Cardiff with other UK cities based mm. on home office metrics, so Leeds, Reading, places like that. Yeah. Um, so when you did that, what did you find? How effective had this yeah. uh, been? Well, it, it, it came as a real surprise, actually, when we looked at the data and found that relative to these other cities, violence-related hospital admissions and serious violence recorded by the police was around 40% lower. Um, it needed a couple of years to bed down and become mature, but at that stage, there were around a 40% reduction. So rates were comparable at before the study and then and then reduced by 40%. Yeah, we started the data collection around three years before the uh, information sharing uh, was introduced. That showed that Cardiff was bumping along with, with, the, with the other cities uh, with similar rates of violence. Um, but it was only when the mature information sharing uh, arrangements were adopted by the city uh, that Cardiff started to diverge noti- noticeably from the other cities and it reached a stage after about two years where there was around a 40% uh, f- uh, less violence um, um, using those measures compared mm. to the other cities. And how about the severity of the injury? Was that yeah. changed? Yeah, and now the, the, this brings us to the, the mechanism of how this information sharing reduced violence. And w- we saw at the same time that serious violence was going down that the intervention was causing an increase in the recording of uh, uh, by the police of what's known as common assaults, so minor violence, which didn't result in any injury. So we think the mechanism is that because the data directed police to particular hotspots, that meant that the police were there or close by when the violence kicked off, and that meant that they intervened earlier and more frequently, which then stopped the violence progressing uh, and therefore stopped people being seriously injured and having to go to hospital. Mm. Cardiff's changed a lot since you started mm. doing this study. It's been massive investment in the city, regeneration, things like that. Mm. Can you tell how much yeah. how much was related to this, this prevention program and how much was related to other factors that yeah. perhaps are harder to measure? Well, in fact, we, th- we think that it's not just the data that's made a difference in Cardiff, but it's, it may well be the involvement of clinicians who treat the injured in the meetings where local government, city government and the police decide about prevention tactics. Clinicians who treat the injured can be an authoritative voice in the, in the city, uh, working with the police and the city government officials. So acting as kind of spokespeople for the injured. So what now do you think this programme should be rolled out and is it just applicable to the UK? Uh, it doesn't depend on high-tech resources, and so this is something, and the WHO has agreed that, that this is something which uh, low- and middle-income countries could usefully adopt. Um, it's, of course, a coalition commitment here in the UK. This is one of their crime prevention policies mm-hmm. now, which is, which is terrific. But I think also replication of this experiment is an important priority so that there's more evidence about how this is working and how it might be refined. Great. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me.
and you can read that research article online for free on bmj.com. Now, Mabel Chu talks to Albert Farrow about novel antiplatelet agents. I have with me in the studio Professor Albert Farrow from the Department of Clinical Pharmacology at King's College London. Professor Farrow is here to discuss his article in the BMJ's Therapeutics series on oral antiplatelet agents in preventing cardiovascular events. Professor Farrow, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you, Mabel. Now, we're all familiar with aspirin as an antiplatelet agent that's been around for generations. However, there are some newer kids on the block, such as clopidogrel and prazogrel. I wonder if you'd like to tell us a bit more about these two drugs. Certainly. Um, As you say, aspirin has been around now for a very long time, and it remains a very good antiplatelet agent. With the advent of drugs like clopidogrel and prazogrel, we have drugs which are more potent than aspirin, and that has uh, good points and bad points. So over the years, we've had a number of trials done using these drugs, and it's become clearer what their indications are. So if I go through some of the common cardiovascular scenarios, acute coronary syndrome, it is now routine practice to treat such patients with dual antiplatelet therapy. That is to say, with a combination of aspirin and clopidogrel. Now, as far as prazugrel goes, prazugrel has come on the market um, more recently in the last year or so, and prazugrel is a more uh, potent uh, um, um agent than clopidogrel, and so is indicated if you need a, a higher degree of platelet inhibition in acute coronary syndrome or if you need it more quickly. So in patients who are going for urgent PCI, and it's also indicated in patients with acute coronary syndrome where they have a particularly high risk of uh, rethrombosis. So if they've uh, previously been on clopidogrel but had thrombosis despite this, or if they've had stent thrombosis whilst they've been on clopidogrel, then prazogrel is a good alternative to clopidogrel. In patients with stable angina or prior myocardial infarction, um, then aspirin alone uh, works very well. And in fact, there is no advantage in um, dual antiplatelet therapy in that situation. In patients who have had um, a, a prior stroke, or who have uh, peripheral vascular disease, or who have um, vascular disease in several territories, such as the coronaries and the peripheral circulation, then in fact clopidogrel turns out to be um, the uh, best option. In patients with transient ischemic attacks, um, aspirin plus dipyridamol um, uh, turns out to be the best combination. So those are uh, the common cardiovascular scenarios uh, in patients who have established disease. Where it becomes um, slightly more contentious is in the area of primary prevention. And the question there is whether antiplatelet therapy is indicated at all. Now, the Joint British Societies um, recommend that um, aspirin should be given in patients who have a 10-year calculated cardiovascular risk of at least 20%. However, not all authorities would agree with this, and a lot of people would say that, in fact, there is no apparent advantage in any antiplatelet therapy at all. And I think this is an area where the clinician has to judge their patients on an individual basis. And if it is judged that they are at particularly high risk for whatever reason, 
then uh, they may uh, feel that aspirin is indicated in those patients. Is there a role for clopidogrel at all in primary prevention for those at high cardiovascular risk? There may be. Uh, And so in patients who are unable to tolerate aspirin, um, so for example, patients who who have had uh, recent peptic ulceration or who have aspirin-induced asthma, then clopidogrel may be an alternative that's used in those uh, indications. What is slightly, again, contentious is whether um, if somebody has had um, acid peptic disease like peptic ulcer or gastroesophageal reflux, if they've had those problems which have been exacerbated with aspirin, some authorities will uh, recommend changing to clopidogrel, whereas others would say the preferred option is to continue with aspirin but to co-prescribe a proton pump inhibitor. And I think both of those options are quite valid. Now that raises the recent controversy on whether taking proton pump inhibitors actually reduces the effectiveness of clopidogrel. What's your advice here? Yes, indeed. Uh, This whole controversy started with some research that showed that patients who have a genetic variant in the cytochrome P452C19 allele, which causes a loss of of function, may respond less well to clopidogrel. And the reason for that, of course, is that clopidogrel is a prodrug and it requires cytochrome P452C19 for its conversion to the active metabolite. So if you have a loss of function in that enzyme, uh, that raises the possibility of uh, loss of action of clopidogrel. So it was found that those people who had the uh, alleles which caused a loss of function in CYP2C19 um, responded less well to clopidogrel and they had more cardiovascular events. So this then raised the question of whether pharmacological inhibitors of that enzyme would do the same thing. And the important class of drugs which do this are the proton pump inhibitors such as omeprazole and lansoprazole and so on. And indeed, if you look at uh, in vitro studies, if you incubate platelets with uh, drugs such as this omeprazole or related drugs, and you look at the ability of clopidogrel to inhibit platelet aggregation in the test tube, you in fact find that there is, um, there is an effect there. However, um, this does not seem to translate very well into an important in vivo effect. So although there is indeed a pharmacological effect of these drugs, and you can detect such an effect, it doesn't seem to be enough to cause an important uh, loss of action of clopidogrel when administered therapeutically. And there's a lot of evidence now to suggest that in fact uh, the proton pump inhibitors don't significantly inhibit the action of clopidogrel when administered to patients and that they can be used quite safely in that situation. Indeed, recent evidence suggests that there is a particular advantage in giving proton pump inhibitors with clopidogrel in as much as if a patient is at risk of um, gastrointestinal bleeding from peptic ulcer, for example, then the PPIs are very good at preventing that. So far from uh, being disadvantageous, there is some recent evidence that co-prescribing PPIs with clopidogrel may actually be advantageous. Okay, so there's no need to stop all my patients who are taking clopidogrel from taking their proton pump inhibitors as well. So that's rather good news. Well, let's, let's discuss other interactions. Are there any other drugs that I need to be concerned about for a patient taking these new oral antiplatelet agents? 
The other thing I should say is that uh, Prasugrel, uh, there is no evidence that Prasugrel uh, interacts with the PPIs at all. So there's uh, no uh, interaction there at all, and that's quite definite. As far as other interactions go, uh, I guess the important uh, ones to be aware of are other drugs which cause bleeding. So the anticoagulants, heparins, warfarin, and so on. The other thing to say is that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can also cause a problem because, of course, uh, uh, non-steroidals will cause peptic ulcer disease. Uh, and so, again, that raises the possibility, if they're co-prescribed, of causing an increase in gastrointestinal hemorrhage. Now, can I ask if dual antiplatelet therapy uh, increases the rate of bleeding significantly compared with monotherapy? It certainly does. There is no doubt that dual antiplatelet therapy causes an increased rate of bleeding compared with either aspirin alone or clopidogrel alone. And indeed, the risk of increased bleeding uh, increases with time. So this uh, brings up the subject of risk versus benefit. And in the setting of acute coronary syndrome, we use dual antiplatelet therapy routinely for uh, 12 months uh, after the event. And the reason for that is that the trials suggest that up to that time point, there is an important benefit to be gained, which is not counterbalanced by the risk of bleeding. After that time, the trials suggest that the bleeding complications outweigh any benefit that might accrue. Of course, that's not hard and fast, and doctors will want to um, adjust that for individual patients. So in patients who have uh, previously uh, rethrombosed when clopidogrel was stopped, then in those kinds of patients, uh, doctors may decide that it is worthwhile continuing on aspirin plus clopidogrel. And I guess that leads um, to the other question of whether there are any tests I need to do before starting a patient on any of these drugs. It's important before starting these drugs to check that there's no underlying uh, bleeding diathesis. And so it's important to do a coagulation profile. You should also do a platelet count as well, because in the setting of significant thrombocytopenia, then again, you wouldn't want to give uh, a drug which potently inhibits platelet function. So coagulation profile and platelet count are important before starting these drugs. And also it's important to do liver function tests as well, because of course in the setting of uh, severe uh, liver uh, damage, then there may be an important bleeding tendency. Uh, as far as monitoring during therapy goes, you don't need to do any routine laboratory tests. There have been concerns raised about possible neutropenia uh, or thrombocytopenia, which can be caused by clopidogrel. However, this is very rare indeed, um, and so it's not something that, uh, it, that should be routinely monitored, unless there's some reason to suppose that that's happened. Indeed, in, uh, in, in trials that have uh, comprised over 20,000 patients, no cases of neutropenia or thrombocytopenia were seen with clopidogrel, so it really is very rare indeed. In certain circumstances, such as a patient undergoing surgery, um, surgeons do get very worried about the risk of bleeding in, in patients taking antiplatelet agents. What is your advice here? I think my advice is that uh, dual antiplatelet therapy should never be stopped without uh, consulting a cardiologist first. Uh, because, of course, uh, these drugs are given for a reason, a very important reason, uh, because they're very effective at preventing uh, rethrombosis. 
So although there is certainly a hazard associated with bleeding in surgery, I think that uh, that has to be counterbalanced against the risk of um, the rethrombosis uh, in, in patients with uh, coronary disease, for example. So I think my advice would be never stop these drugs without uh, consulting a cardiologist. And what about ticagrelor, the latest drug in the group to become available? Um, it's received a European um, licence. Um, it's not currently uh, available in the UK, but NICE are, are considering uh, whether it should be uh, available for use in acute coronary syndrome. And Albert's article with some more detail is published on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week when Mabel looks at postural hypertension. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.